it's a great deal of trust that the pastor and the, the associate pastor leave in me because they give me a task to do and then they're not here. So <laughs> I'll just have a little bit of disclaimer. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. As we come to the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I have come to regard these words in the 58th verse of this letter as some of the most comforting words that could ever have been passed on by anyone to another. It is my hope that through the relating of a bit of my personal journey, you will understand why I, and so many other recipients of the words in Paul's letter to the Corinthian church might believe as I do. But before beginning, a bit of a disclaimer is in order. I believe it is only right to start with what I am not. I am not a theologian. I am not a biblical teacher. Nor am I a trained preacher or expositor of the scripture. I must admit that standing before you to bring a message from God's word finds me out of my comfort zone. The role I prefer for myself is one that serves the saints by the bringing of quiet and encouragement to those for whom preaching is their calling. I owe much to New Hope Community Church and regard it as a place where we are the beneficiaries of learned excellence of our pastors and visiting teachers who week after week deliver sound teaching that builds us up in the knowledge and truth of our incomparable Lord. Having stated what I am not, I take solace in the knowledge that I am simply like many, if not most, of those who each day confront the important questions of life. Questions like, what is true? What is the basis of our significance? Is this existence all that there is? What really matters? And the like. Nothing would please me more than to be an example of the fruit of the labor of individuals like Jason and Joe, who have dedicated their lives to to the reaping of God's holy harvest, the people who are called by his name. Moreover, I consider myself to have been grafted into the family of God through the saving work and message of Christ, and now I count myself among his disciples. Not least importantly, my bona fides for standing before you rest completely in the fact that I consider myself just like many of you, no more, no less, of those who have been changed by God's grace through exposure to the truth, by observing the work of his church, and through the effort of the chosen ones he has placed in my path. When Jason asked if I would be interested in preaching on June 11th on today's text, 1 Corinthians 15:58, I'm quite certain that he knew what my immediate thought would be. You guessed it. I thought to myself, Nope, but I'm available to clean the bathrooms if you would like. (laughs) The second sentence of his request, however, sealed the deal. 
He continued in his short email, I thought it would serve our body to have you talk about how your experience studying N.T. Wright's book on the resurrection set you up for some of the steps of faith God had you take then. Being the seasoned pastor that he is, he knew that turning down his request down, though not something I would take lightly, I would be able to rationalize not taking him up on his offer. However, refusing the opportunity to bring glory to God in response to a work he had begun in me, on the other hand, is not something I could comfortably do. Our chief end, as we are reminded in the Westminster Catechism, is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So, about Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God. To my shame, I admit that despite being raised in a Christian family, having attended church fairly regularly, having participated in the receiving of the sacraments as a Catholic and an evangelical, having recited the catechisms more times than I could recount, I had somehow missed the whole good news of the gospel. For me, studying Wright's exposition of Jesus' historical and physical resurrection left me changed forever regarding its centrality to and importance of the gospel and what it means for living in this life and in the life after life after death. Before encountering the new, for me at least, understanding that I gained from Wright's comprehensive narrative, I was not in a position to stand firm on anything of such high stakes consequence as being confident about the what about what in the world really matters after all. Do our present actions count for anything? Why live a good life if we all end up at the same point anyway? What happens when we die? Anything at all? Can we really be sure of anything? I can explain my personal journey in three parts. Part one, as a non-believer. Part two, as a believer whose truth conformed only to my personal understanding. And finally, part three, as a believer of a whole truth based on a historical savior who entered our world, walked among us, was crucified, died, and was buried, physically rose from the dead, and lives forevermore. In the first vignette, as a former unbeliever, I can now hear King Solomon's words in my ears. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear it's full of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. 
Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I don't know about you, but I think uh, a similar example from one of the things that I've been occupied with for all of my adult life. I've been working in an organization, building up this organization, seeing it be the place that was formerly called the bone pile, where all the people who were no good for anything else went, spending the last 16 years of my life building it up. And it's fairly gained some fair acclaim. Um, but as I transition almost to the next phase of my life, thinking that one day, circumstances prevailing, resources not coming anymore, people forgetting our heritage, it will all just be like the river and flow back into itself. And one day, it may not be the place that is so wonderful for me to go to now. The names that I've worked with over these decades will be forgotten, and then it'll be a whole new adventure, and then somebody else will have a chance to work on the bone pile and build it up again. No matter how freeing it might be from time to time to believe that we are unaccountable to anyone or anything, everything in my existence screams out against the thought that all roads lead to the same end. In fact, I find myself liberated by the fact that they can't and don't. A second vignette in my experience is illustrated in four paintings by Thomas Cole, that I would like to describe to you now. I would ask uh, if you get a chance, if you don't know Thomas Cole and you haven't seen his uh, paintings at the National Gallery or even on the web, you, you should check them out. It's a collection called The Voyage of Life. So if I had Amy's skill, I wouldn't need to depend on the pictures that are not here today because she's a storyteller, but I'll do the best I can. And this Voyage of Life exemplifies my view of reality before encountering Wright's book. So if you can imagine with me, and I hope you brought your imaginations today because this is not my gift either, another thing that I'm not. But you see one of the four paintings that makes the allegory, and it is a child, an infant in a boat, guided by an angel, coming out of a cave that's really it's nowhere, it's coming out of nothing, into the world. An angel's driving the boat, or the superintending the baby driving the boat, and the infant is clueless about everything that's going on around it, but it's safe and it's coming into the world that we're seeing. So a nice serene picture, all is quiet, it's coming into the newness of the existence of this life. We don't know exactly where it came from, but it's entering into the world we all know now. Scene one. The next step, step is... You see an angel disembarking the boat, but now we have an adolescent on the boat. What is curious is the angel that was driving the boat when the baby was born is no longer needed by the adolescent because the adolescent is pointing forward to this great mystical palace in the front. It's moving toward it. It has no use for the angel anymore. It's got its own mind made up, and it's not a baby. It's learned to control its environment. And it's moving into this space because... Now it's asserting itself. He's the master of all this opportunity that it's drifting to. So imagine in your mind's eye, this big palace. He's headed toward the palace. It's still beautiful. It's still really great, and everything is going well. 
Now, adulthood. Those of us who have made it to adulthood understand that we're not driven by the angel anymore where we don't have to pay attention to anything. We're also not having the world as our oyster because we're looking at this thing that we know we're going to get there. We see the palace. It's just about getting to it. But we see an adult man with darkened skies, a tattered boat, rapids rising. He's on his knees in a boat and hoping he gets through because he's in control of nothing anymore. And he's going down the rapids and life is impeding on this idyllic world that he had as as an adolescent. And then the final scene, it's an old man. He's in a broken boat. It's dark all behind him. He's looking into the light, and the angels that he left on the shore as an adolescent are now in the area in front of him, calling him up and showing him the way into another place that he does not know where it is. It's an undiscovered country. He doesn't know what it is, but he knows he's gone through a lot that he's not been controlled of, but he made it down the rapids. It's serene now, but it's not bright. It's not brilliant anymore. But at least he has the opportunity. He's going to something that he doesn't know, but he can see it um, on the horizon. While being an allegory, this collection represents what I used to believe was representative of the good news of the gospel. Though decidedly a better and more hopeful view of the passage of life, one with a hopeful afterlife beyond the reach of additional unanticipated trouble, this outlook leaves us let down as we leave all we have worked for and striven for behind, albeit for freedom from troubles encountered in a physical world. There is a better truth, however, a truth too wonderful for me to apprehend previous to my exposure to Wright's book and the clear rendering of scripture. For whatever reason, I had only considered half of the story while missing the whole truth. I can only imagine Paul speaking to the Corinthians and us. Let's hear the complete reason we can stand firm. And if you'd like to, you can either just listen to me read it, or you can follow along in your Bibles if you wish. And it's the entirety of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles, and I do not even deserve to be called an apostle, but I personally 
because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, not, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the first fruits. Then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father who has destroyed all dominion authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those who are baptized, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day, yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be misled. misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought. And stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. 
Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds have another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies, and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind, and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and a star differs from star in splendor. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth, the second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth, and as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying will be, that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the therefore. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. In the first vignette that I talked about for the me that I was, and we often talk in this church about the now and the not yet, but this is in three parts, sort of. It's because it's the, the then, the now, and the not yet. You think of the unbeliever. I um, greatly esteem uh, Neil deGrasse deGrasse Tyson as a scientist, as an astrophysicist. Had an opportunity while thinking about coming to talk to you today and structuring this um, life example of the transformation of me under the guidance of New Hope. And I heard him talk on his radio show, and he pretty much says, well... I'm beyond the need for God. We don't need a God. And scientists only things take uh, into account things that measure. And the interviewer um, 
asked him, I, I believe it was an interview with Larry King, asked him, so what do you think is going to happen after this? And he proceeded to say, well, he's not worried about that. He loves the unknown. Um, and so Larry King says, well, what are you living for? He says, well, I think we're all here to be significant. Well, I'm, I'm no astrophysicist any more than I'm a theologian, but uh, when I think about significance, well, what exactly is significance? And what about the people who don't get the opportunity to become an astrophysicist of really world-renowned and acclaim? And what if they don't do anything that, judged by human standards, would be viewed as a significant event? What hope is it for them? What if I'm born and I don't have the use of my limbs or my brains or my thoughts or my faculties? Can I still be significant or is life meaningless for me? So as that unbeliever, as, as great as it sounds, I'm not afraid of dying. I love these experiences that I can look forward to and all I have to do is be significant. It doesn't sound like to me he has a strong basis for being able to stand firm. We can't even sit in the room and talk together about what being significant means because it's so many different things as judged by so many different people. So there must be more. In the second vignette, um, I even find in my daily experience, and these are with my Christian friends, many of my Christian friends at work. I have a group at work that we meet. We pray together regularly. And I can't wait to get back sometimes after Sundays and share with them about what I've learned on a routine basis from Joe and Jason and the many others that come here. And when I got a hold of Wright's book, other than thinking after college I knew it was not going to be very useful for me to read anything that's thicker than these uh, cedar bricks or whatever we have, and it was much more than I really could take in and but I trusted Jason, and we went through it, marinated on it for about 12 and a half years. That's all it took for me. But I, I go there, and I, we share with them, uh, you know, with, like the second vignette. Yes, this life has meaning. We've got to live a good life. Because in the end, just as some of the old Negro spirituals always put out, because one day we're going to lay this burden down. And then we're just going to fly away. We're going to fly away. And get away from this trouble that we're in. But uh, I don't know about you guys, but sometimes thinking about floating on a cloud with a cherub didn't really do it for me after a while. It was much better than floating into the abyss and hoping that I was significant to someone or something at some point in time. And that, that was good. That was better than not. But do I really think that everything I'm doing now as I try to do my best to be an example for not just for other people but for somebody that God has an investment in that he can look down and, one, and say that you know my investment was worth it not that I'm earning his favor but I owe him my favor or the favor so but I go to them and I'm talking around the table and we always get to the point where oh yeah we're gonna, we're gonna you know Jesus was resurrected we get that and then I add the piece about, well, you know, we're going to be resurrected too. But not as spirits and not as ghosts, but as people in a physical place. I notice, to my very much dismay, that the, the eyes go dim and they go, they give me the doggy head tilt. 
Like, okay, I hear what you're saying, but the, we'll skip by that piece, but we're going to heaven. Well, where's that? Do you read the part about the new heavens and the new earth and God being with his people and people being created on the earth? Somehow, it's a real shame that in many churches, they don't really get that piece. And it's not anything I'm going to do. And, and as I read the scriptures, it says, well, everybody's going to die and be resurrected and then face the judgment, yes. But it's nothing I'm going to do. But God's making everybody. So nobody's staying in the grave. Now what happens after that is open to very much debate. And because Jason and Joe on here, I won't freelance too much. So we'll leave that part to them. But that's the second vignette. So it's not just enough to believe that we're going to live a good life and do some good things and we're going to earn God's favor and then one day we're going to fly away. Who wants that? I can still, at my advanced age, remember what it felt like to wake up with no aches and pains and and run and skip and play all day and not want to come in. But my experience tells me with each passing year that we used to have this great German short hair. Her name was Gretchen. Most of her life, she leapt over fences without even thinking about it. But then there came a time when she ran up to the fence and said, is this really worth it? And it wasn't worth it for her anymore, and she couldn't get over that fence. Well, that time's coming for all of us. But so that's the second vignette. But this idea of we can stand firm because we know that not only did Jesus come, take on this human suit, take it to the grave and come out of the grave with the human suit on, still God, I can stand firm on that because everything matters now. I'm not doing all the things I do just to get, get rid of all this. I'm not going to sacrifice and suffer for things and think that someday in God's grand design, he hasn't watched everything and he can unroll that book and see everything. And not because I could earn it on my own, but one day, because I have taken the stance to believe on him, I will be just like his son who came and left that grave. Could there be a more hopeful message on which meaning, significance, and purpose can be anchored? While still looking forward to a future existence beyond trouble, disappointment, and strife, no good work accomplished for the Lord's sake will be unrewarded in a physical place. In our transformed physical bodies, a true and distinctive continuity between the now and the not yet in a restored world without end. Now that's a reason to stand firm, whatever comes our way. After knowing this, nothing else will do. As Tim Keller reminds us, if Jesus Christ was really raised from the dead, If he is really the Son of God and you believe in him, all these things you long for most desperately will come true at last. We will escape time and death. We will know love without parting. We will even communicate with non-human beings, think angels. And we will see evil defeated forever. In fairy stories especially the best and most well-told ones, we get a temporary emotional reprieve from the real world in which our deepest desires are all violently rebuffed. But if we believe the gospel, and we are assured that all those longings will be fulfilled in real time, 
real space and history. We must never settle for a false story or a misreading of the good news when we can stand firm in the whole truth. Let's pray. Father, only you have the words of life. Indeed, you are life. Like his disciples, when questioned by Jesus about whether they would leave him like other fo- others of his followers, give us the understanding and clarity to say, where else would we go? There is clearly no thing and no one to whom we can turn to receive what we have always yearned for. Come, Lord Jesus.